Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. I'm Rosie Candethel, PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible and being awesome at Emory University. <laughs> and I'm Tim McNinch. I'm assistant professor <laughs> of amazingness at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rachel Wren, assistant professor of mediocrity at Trinity Lutheran Seminary oh, at Capital right. University. <laughs> This week, we are bringing you preaching tips and tricks for Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, the sixth Sunday in Lent. Before we dive in, however, we've got an announcement to make. Mm -hmm. That's right. We are excited to bring you all in on something that's been in the works for a while now. We've got a new partner in this first reading endeavor, and we couldn't be more pleased to have him along for the ride. Yes, this is very, very exciting. Since way back in uh, the olden days in 2019, it's been our mission here at First Reading to bring you all preaching tips and tricks, to, to amplify voices and biblical studies that are underrepresented, and to do all of that while just having a ton of fun. We couldn't think of a better person to join us in this venture than our new dear friend, Paul Essa. You will probably remember him from his stint as our guest co-host a few months back. Uh, but now Paul is joining us as a regular co-host on the first reading team. Paul's a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale University, and he's uh, currently studying the phenomenon of displacement in the Hebrew Bible and brings just a, a wonderfully unique perspective to that conversation as a scholar who is from Ghana. Like Rosie, Rachel, and I, Paul is interested in academic issues, but also grounded in his church community as a member of the Presbyterian Church of Ghana. We're so pleased to have Paul joining us as a co-host, and this uh, we should just give our official welcome to you, Paul Essa. <laughs> so good to have you with Woo! us on this party episode. Yeah. It is exciting to be here, guys. It is really, really exciting to be here because I've been secretly listening to you all uh, for a while <laughs> and checking you all out. And I was really pleased. I remember when you celebrated your 100th episode, oh, cool. you did a little video of all the guests that you've had in the yeah. past. That's truly, truly inspiring. And so being a member of this group is just like... You know, a huge, huge thing for me as oh, it is for yeah, you. Yeah, sure. this is cool. this is wonderful. Welcome, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and it is such a fun time for you to be joining us, Paul, because the sixth Sunday of Lent has plenty of heavy lifting, yes. lots of text to <laughs> chew on this week, and depending on your church context, this Sunday can look really different. Well, right, and in some cases, opinions on those differences can get kind of heated. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, says the Lutheran. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In some contexts, the sixth Sunday of Lent is known as Palm Sunday. And often that service begins with a reading of Jesus's triumphal procession into Jerusalem and a procession using palms, right? So in that case, the first reading and the second reading get cut and you only use the psalm and the gospel reading. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And in other contexts, people celebrate uh, what they call Passion Sunday, which may or may not include uh, that procession with palms, but does include an entire reading of the Passion narrative, which uh, this year in the lectionary comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Well, uh, in, in still other contexts, uh, Palm or Passion Sunday is not celebrated at all. And the pastor just finishes their sermon series. So I'm curious, what do you all typically do in your context? 
Well, the, the Lutheran church is, of course, as varied as Lutheran churches always are. So speaking from my experience, we typically did, when I served as a pastor, we did Palm Passion Sunday. So we we did it all. We <laughs> did the procession with the palms at the beginning. And um, then actually, we did a, a mini homily, and then we did communion, and then we ended with the Passion reading. The idea being not everybody would come, most likely, to the Monday, Thursday service and the Good Friday service. Right. And so for Lutherans especially, right, it was important that we we hear about the death of Jesus <laughs> instead of going from the triumphal procession of Palm Sunday to the triumphal procession of Resurrection Sunday. So that was what we did in my church. But again, mm. Lutheran church is as varied as can be. Yeah, you know, I I uh, I really didn't know about Passion Sunday as a thing until recently. Like this mm. is, I grew up only doing the Palm thing on Palm Sunday, and the reflection on the Passion of Jesus was saved for Good Friday. Right. Yeah, I also like Tim grew up in a churches where I didn't feel like there was a specific kind of liturgy. We did do the palm branches a lot. That's what I remember as a kid. But it's only more recently as I've been in the Episcopal Anglican Church where, you know, we really do it up now. So there's like a <laughs> whole palm service, a pause outside of the gates, you know, while the ch- church doors get flung open and you move into Whoa. the Jerusalem moment and the passion gets read. You know, we, the Anglicans and Episcopals really like to do the... Um, you do it right. The, I think you the liturgy, right. like the beauty of the liturgy is definitely one thing that really attracts me to the Episcopal Church. And there's definitely that, the pause, the moment between mm. uh, the procession and then, you know, the movement into the Passion. So that whole week mm. gets kind of done up, you know. Yeah, yeah. I gotta it's, say, it's, you it's you Anglicans and Lutherans, like, know how to do the whole pomp and circumstance thing. Like, that's, <laughs> that's your strong suit for sure. <laughs> yeah, what about you, Paul? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not entirely different from uh, from what Tim and Rosie just described. Um, I, I I think you know I I do not uh, necessarily remember like a separate uh, celebration of Palm and in uh, in Passion, uh, but I do as a child remember us doing a lot of the Palm instead. And one interesting thing is that uh, it's actually like really physically embodied in the sense that it's not just a marching to church, but it's actually a marching through town, right? So you have all, oh, wow. yeah, you have all like you have churches, you know, clothed differently with palms that are like, you know, decorated like ribbons or, you know, like oh. whatever with flowers and everything. And you actually march through town half of the time that you would spend in church. And then you, you end the march in church, you know, um, and then we'll do a little reflection on Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's all, always this emphasis on, you know, Jesus knew that he was going, it, Jerusalem is the place where he was going to die. But s- suddenly he still like, you know, courageously approached his death, you know, with mm. this like victorious, you know, posture and things like that. And, um, you know, there was always that. But as a kid, I remembered Palm Sunday more for the food and the celebration at the end of it <laughs> than anything else. So. Right, right. I love that. I love the march through town. That's amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> I have a I have a special connection to Palm Sunday because I was actually born on Palm oh Sunday. Oh my god! Wow! Right, right. Pomp and I circumstance did. from the start. Right? <laughs> is that is that like being born on a on a leap day? Like every once in a while, it does it coincide with your birthday, and that's like you're like five so, years yeah. old in Palm Sunday right. years. Yes. Yeah. So I don't cool. know. I think I'm like three years old in Palm Sunday years. So it says something about my sense of humor. Um, well. All of this to say, there's a great diversity of opinion to what do on this sun, what to do on this Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. And and because of that, there's a great variety of opportunity for what to preach on. So maybe we'll start with the Palm Sunday text, um, specifically Psalm 118, and they give us Psalm 118 verses one through two. Hop, skip, and a jump to 19 to 29. So, what did you all find preaching worthy about this psalm? I'd love to dive right in, right? So one thing that I love about Psalm 118, I know you've got some things to say too, Rachel. So I'm going to just say this to kind of set it up. Like, so one thing that really struck me again, uh, being in the Episcopal Church and also thinking about the maybe two liturgical moments that are going on, the Palm Sunday and the acclamation of Jesus, and then the kind of swift turnaround that's also kind of lurking behind Palm Sunday, which is the moment of the rejection, right? And so the same crowd that is praising Jesus outside as they enter into Jerusalem, the mood shifts as we move into Passion Sunday, right? So one thing to uh, that I found really this year as I was thinking about Psalm 118 was thinking about the kind of history that brings us to Palm Sunday, right? So when we enter into the Matthew Passion narrative, we're already in the moment of a liturgy. So this is the tabernacle, mm-hmm. uh, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So the, the Feast of Sukkoth, um, which has a, a one of the three Torah-mandated feasts, right? So Psalm 118 is among the Hallel Psalms, like the kind of traditional Psalm that is read during the Passover. And so we're actually kind of reaching back into time as we read Psalm 118, which is a royal psalm, um, a song that's sung in connection with the Passover meal, right? And so what we have in the psalm, as you look at the content, is an entrance liturgy, literally, right? So it starts with, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, his steadfast love, that word chesed that we talk about a yeah. lot, that covenantal loyalty is there invoked, His that chesed endures forever, right? So Psalm one verse. 118 verses one through two kind of invokes that. And then we move into verses um, 19 to 29, right? So those last 19 verses, actually, if you look at them, it sort of moves you through the spaces, right? So open to me the mm. gates of righteousness, Sadek, right? So we talk about this word, right, righteous, that I may enter through them. And then the next is, this is the gate of the Lord, the Yahweh, the righteous, the sadiq, will enter mm. through it, right? So at that moment, the Psalm, Psalm 118 is actually kind of leading us through this procession to the gates of Jerusalem, right? Through the gates of the temple. And so the sense of these verses, the content of it, hopefully is invoking that moment of mm. moving through the procession. And then in verse uh, 27, right? So we're there with the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. So the sense is that we're moving through space 
And Psalm 118 is kind of located right between the shortest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 117, and the longest psalm in the in the, in the mm. Psalter, Psalm 119, which I always thought was kind of interesting. But anyway, the the idea here for me with Psalm invoking Psalm 118 in this moment outside of the church during the procession is to be thinking about the tabernacle um, and to be thinking about the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of the Harvest, the ingathering as the branches are being waved, this idea of harvest happening. And so the branches are not only about uh, the adulation of Jesus, but also about this moment for the Jewish people as they celebrate the exodus, their survival, and mm-hmm. these branches in the air of life and food and family mm-hmm. together. I love that. I, I love this idea of, of the fact that um, what we associate with a typically Christian procession of using branches and using palms, you're pointing out, Rosie, goes way further back than that. And there's there's a deep beauty to that because it draws us into a centuries-long tradition that did not start with us and reminds us that we as Christians were grafted in to this tradition. Um, but it's also it's also just a beautiful way to recognize who Jesus was. You know, often we, I get to teach in my position, I get to teach both Old Testament and New Testament. And it's really fun in New Testament to just continue to say over and over again, remember Jesus was Jewish and his Bible was the Hebrew Bible. You know, remember Jesus was Jewish and his Bible was the Hebrew Bible. So, so this would have been, right, his concept of a procession with branches. It wouldn't have been what we call Palm Sunday. It would have been Sukkot. It would have been this this connotation <laughs> of exodus and of leading out of um, out of liberation. I just think that's a gorgeous idea. Yeah, it's so helpful to have the the image of the branches actually mean something. I don't know. I, I just yeah. always um, <laughs> associated it with Palm Sunday because, you know, that's what people yeah. did on Palm Sunday in Jesus' day. You know, they <laughs> maybe this was a thing they did and they just always had palm branches around. So, you know, but, but no, they, they have um, meaning to them. And we see that similar sort of yeah. usage in this in this psalm, the uh, metaphor that the branches have about abundance in life and hope. I think that it is fascinating the importance of this tradition as um, rooted in a tradition that is not Christian. And I think that powerfully speaks to uh, you know, Jewish Christian relationships. I've been thinking about that a lot, yeah. noting that I study around a lot of Jews and all of my supervisors now are Jewish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and often like we Christians like to isolate ourselves. I can speak for Christians because I identify as one. Uh, we like to isolate ourselves and claim some yeah. of these traditions as our own, right? But clarifying yeah. that this is this is also a tradition that began somewhere else in respect that sort of even helps us understand and appreciate what that means a lot more. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. I think you could, I wonder, I know we usually give preaching tips, but sometimes we also uh, dabble in the liturgical as well. And I wonder if you would um, liturgically honor this tradition by before reading the triumphal procession, because typically that's at least what we did in the Lutheran churches. We would start in the back of the sanctuary by reading the triumphal procession, and then the opening hymn leads us into the sanctuary. But I wonder how neat it would be to have one person chanting this psalm and begin the procession that way, and sort of, again, beginning at the roots of the tradition with the psalm and with its tradition, and then having that lead us into um, the reading of the the Matthean passion narrative. That could be a cool way to do that. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Yeah, that would that would be really great. And it just I, I think anything that we can do to underline the theme that we've been talking about here is helpful, especially since this this week in the Christian liturgy, the the Palm Sunday and the Passion of, of Christ it has historically been drawn into anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish yeah. rhetoric in the history of, of the church, of Christianity. So anything that we can do to celebrate the the Jewish flavor of these holidays mm-hmm. uh, within mm-hmm. the Christian tradition um, can only be helpful towards um, some reparation of that damage that Christianity has done to our Jewish neighbors. Mm, great point. As I was looking at this psalm, I also, um, I always find it interesting to see, you know, I have great, great compassion for translators because as the uh, Greek professor at my school says, all translators are liars. We just tell different lies. <laughs> like everybody's trying to figure out how to communicate what this means, but it's a really hard thing to do. Um, so Psalm 118 verse 25 in the NRSV says, save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us mm. success. That word success is a really... Um, freighted, Mm -hmm. heavy one in especially the American context, um, especially kind of a theology of glory context. And so I did just look at it. And and just a a quick note that that word is actually which is in the hifil. So it's a causative, if you've remembered your Hebrew. Um, When you cause something to happen, you don't have the word cause in there in Hebrew. It just shows up in a different form. And so this word kind of at its core is like, cause us to prosper. So, so there's a, or another way to say it that maybe because prosperity still has that um, Mm -hmm. connotation to it, but thrive, this sort of Mm -hmm. thriving life, which Jesus kind of picks up in John as abundant life. uh, That's, that's really what's going on here is it is a Royal Psalm. It does have to do with success and victory, but, but those words are not unattached from this concept of of simple thriving and abundant life. Mm -hmm. So if you are preaching and you want to talk about what, this moment in Jesus's life does, it's interesting that it's right at the moment before his betrayal, before his death, that this psalm is read about abundant life and thriving life. And I think that context might help us reframe the way we understand what is abundant life or what is what does it mean to thrive, especially again in an American context. So that's just one thing. Yeah, and, and that's helpful. It's, I think to add to that, it uh, that word hatslicha is in parallel here with the the verb to save hoshia hoshiana nice. anna. This is our hosanna word, right? <clears throat> so the mm-hmm. it, within this poem, uh, even in the structure of the poem, that word success, prosper, thrive is wrapped up in God's yeah. saving work. So it's a it's a rescue word. Nice. Awesome. Uh, we've we've made our we've processed our way through uh, into the the sacred space, <laughs> and uh, now why don't we turn our attention then to the Passion Sunday texts, and uh, in particular the first reading there, which is Isaiah fifty, uh, and if I remember right, it's verses four through nine a are given to us. Mm-hmm. A, that's right. So so what do we have on that? I guess like. Uh, you know the the idea that um, God has given me the tongue of a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah, that's like a very interesting uh, but also complex. Uh, you know, 
way to describe God giving giving words. But I don't want to get into the complexity of yeah. it. But I guess like by far more far more than um, you know the personality of a teacher or a scholar is is perhaps the skill and the expertise um, of the teacher which is being emphasized in this case. And the word that is being used here is. Uh, Limudim, which is from the root Lamad, right? To teach, to be a disciple, to be a mm -hmm. follower, to be a student. Um, and for me, what is interesting here mm -hmm. is that when Jeremiah uses the same word Lamad, I think in Jer Jeremiah chapter two, um, it, he uses it as a way to refer to familiarity with a thing, like mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. being used to a mm -hmm. technical thing, uh, almost talking about like mm -hmm. so experienced such that, um, you know, one's expertise guarantees minimal errors in, in yeah, a thing, yeah. right? So oh, it's like God yeah. is giving me this like special skill to be able to use words in a way to sustain and to uplift the weary, you know, that's really mm -hmm. fascinating. And I don't know what you think about that, Tim. I, I think that's that's right on track. In fact, mm -hmm. um, it's it's interesting to me that that word limudim here is uh, translated variously. And, and I think um, NRSV has a little footnote even like um, yeah. they weren't sure what to do with it. So yeah. it's the tongue of a teacher footnote um, and the footnote says what uh, Hebrew of those who are taught. Um, it The same word comes up at the end of verse four. Um, God wakens yeah. my ear to listen as those who are taught. That's the same word, limudim. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right, Paul, that the emphasis here is not necessarily on the on the role of a teacher or even necessarily of a student, but of talking about a, a tongue and an ear that are practiced, are disciplined, have um, been taught mm. to be attentive, attuned to the word of God in a way that... Um, can be used skillfully to benefit others, like you were saying, Paul, to to um, sustain the weary, as the as the poet says there. Yeah, like even describing some kind of a divine divine tutoring, you know, like God, the idea that God gives words. Like I don't know, it's it's really fascinating to me. And over here, I'm thinking about um, instances uh, in Exodus. I think Exodus chapter four. From verse 11, when God sends Moses and Moses is trying to excuse himself, you know, from this mission that God is giving him by saying that I, I'm not able to speak. Like I have a I have a thing. I cannot speak. And God says, you know what? I I, I can put words in your mouth. I can make you speak literally. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, and when Jeremiah receives yeah. a word in Jeremiah 1. You know, he says like it is God that puts the words in his mouth, right? So, the the idea that God, uh, you know, puts words in people's mouths in the Hebrew Bible is truly fascinating to me, and even more fascinating, I guess, is like the fact that the words are not for the benefit of the bearer of the words, but yes, they are for yes. the liberation, yeah. you know, and for the benefit of those yeah. who would hear the word, right? And God ensures that those yeah. words go out. In this particular case in Isaiah 50, it's for the benefit of the weary. Yeah. And I mean, to add to that, this text really helps us understand that uh, your point you're making, Paul, that it's not for the benefit of the person who is given the word, because immediately in verses five through nine a, they start to describe their experience, which isn't all that fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. 
Well, and I do think that matches nicely with what you were saying, Paul, about how being given a word is almost being trained in a way. Because as I was reading this, the first word that popped into my mind is one that I've been thinking about for a while and I haven't quite known what to do with. Um, but that word is obedience. And I don't, I, I think we have a really rich tradition in the Christian tradition, the wider Christian tradition of what it means to be obedient to God. Mm -hmm. um, I listened to the devotional podcast. It's called Pray As You Go. I don't know if you've heard of it, but they always, oh, it's like yeah. a 10 to 15 minute little devotional podcast. And it, it ends with this phrase. They change the phrase every season, but right now they're using the phrase, um, which is something like, everything is yours to you, Lord, I return it. Do with it what you will. And it's this mm. really, um, this this concept that we don't have a good word for because words like obedience, words like submission have a negative connotation to them. But there really is this recognition that giving oneself over to God and trusting in that providence and that mercy, it may not always be the most comfortable of experiences, but it is the thing that will ultimately sustain the weary with the word. No, I think that's right. In fact, I have in my notes the word obedience pops up here for me too, because I think huh. that's a, a big part of what's going on here. The The prophet is talking about how impelled they are to be obedient to the word of God, despite the difficulty that that puts them in and the attacks of their enemies and, and the haters and the ones who will uh, physically harm them because of their obedience to the word of God. I think there's something that that really, I think, is is why this is included in the Passion Sunday liturgy. Right. Because it's it's looking ahead, perhaps, to Jesus's submission to the the pain and, and torment of his ordeal as he sought to be obedient to the call of God in his life. And so there's a there's a parallel here, a connection here. It's not that it's not that Isaiah was predicting Jesus exactly, mm -hmm. but that, uh, you know, Jesus himself uh, looked to this type of tradition as a model for following the, the word of God. And so this this passage becomes resonant to, to his situation. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think this is where it's so um tricky to have this text on Passion Sunday because what happens, especially with Isaiah, as Tyler Mayfield has shown, is that it the these passages from Isaiah that have become so associated with Jesus become only understood as foretellings of Jesus. That's what they were. They foretold, um, they told the future about Jesus who would come again. And what I've found helpful to talk about this in a slightly different way is to put it in the context of this is how the early community uh, made sense of what happened to Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, the same way that when something happens in our lives and we go to scripture to make sense of it, mm -hmm. that's what the early community did for Jesus as well. They went to scripture to try to understand what happened to him. And so they read scripture through the context of Jesus's life. So it's less of a foretelling and more of a faith resource, really, that the early community drew on to understand Jesus. Yeah, that's super helpful. And <laughs> and you know what that what that does? Another thing that that does for me is it invites us not to um, see Jesus's passion as only the one-off that it was, mm -hmm. but that 
if we mm. identify ourselves as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, then we learn from him about what obedience to the call of God means. And we get to walk out in our own lives that uh, attentiveness mm. to the word of God, which Jesus and his community learned from their prophetic scriptures. So we have kind of all of those resources yeah. to draw from as we walk out our own practice of being limudim. Nice. You know, the the other Very the other nice. thing that I want to just make sure that we underline here is goes back to something that Paul was emphasizing about uh, the this message being um, this this word being not just for the bearer of the word, but especially for others. I think uh, uh, maybe a pitfall is that it could be easily used as a sort of justification for closing down dialogue and just sort of like, I don't care what anybody says and all of my enemies are against me and, and, you know, I'm just right and everybody else is wrong. And the scripture says (laughs) that I just need to set my face like Flint and, you know, not pay attention to any of those others. God will be my vindicator. And it sort of shuts down conversation in that way. But I think what what Paul is getting at in drawing our attention to the beneficiaries of this word from God is uh, an encouragement to let this be something that opens us toward the service of others, even at our own personal cost. So it's not a shutting down of conflict in order to assert our own sense of what's right and true. But it's about opening ourselves up yeah. to the service of others, even at our own personal cost, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have I have two sort of related things to say about um, about all of that and the idea of um, a weary people. Right. So, you know, as, as someone who serves a small immigrant church here in Connecticut, I, you know, I I always like see families and people who are burdened by um, cultural and social and economic weight, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and I see, yeah. and I see how, you know, like in the text, we sort of see how the text assumes the power of um, eloquent speech and eloquent prophet, prophetic speech, right? It, it does assume that there is something that eloquent speech does to the emotion and to the psychology mm-hmm. of people who are weary or are burdened, right? Mm-hmm. That it has the ability to lift them up, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I'm thinking here that, you know, p- perhaps this is an opportunity to start thinking about how not just any speech, but eloquent, skillful, prophetic, truthful speech can lift some of those yeah. emotional and psychological weight, especially in a context um, where I serve as, you know, like a, a junior pastor in an immigrant church, right? Um, and also just yeah. to thinking about pitfalls, like Tim rightly clarified, it is helpful to also, you know, point out that it's not just any speech right it's 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 one thing to keep people Mm. hopeful or to sustain them with words but it's not just any words because we can actually say oh yeah god is gonna do it and you know this is gonna happen and you know that's gonna change but it's not always the case right we Mm -hmm. we have it should be truthful speech it should be uh 
speech that is based on truth. And I don't know what truth in this particular case would mean because I don't know what people are wary of, you know. And so depending on what exactly yeah. people are wary of, I'm sure we can find speech that are, you know, based on truth and based on reality um, to uplift and help lift some of those like emotional weight that people are carrying. Oh, I think that's so helpful. I, I learned a lot when I lived in Atlanta from um, my husband was a part of a uh, ministerium there that included people from all different kinds of churches. And so there were uh, Presbyterian, Catholic, Lutheran, um, uh, White Baptist, Black Baptist. And I remember a distinct conversation I had with one of the um, the Black Baptist pastors that I was trying to understand the, the concept mm-hmm. of prophetic preaching, especially here in the, the kind of more broadly Black American church, there's multiple varieties, but there is a consistent emphasis, at least overall, on this prophetic word. And so I was trying to understand that as I was teaching a class called Theology of the Prophets. And one of the things that that came up from that conversation was a prophetic word is a word you are given by God. It is not something that you come up with yourself. It is not something that you want to say. It is a word that, first of all, you are given And then second of all, that you check out with other people to see if they also affirm the fact that this is a God-given word. So this concept that, you know, we we truly are given something that can sustain the weary. It's not mm. it's not from us. It's something that is a gift from God. And I think Paul, you were really highlighting that mm. there in an important mm. way. One thing I've been holding my tongue on, but that I think maybe I should try to offer here, um, is that, so I've been troubled by this idea of obedience in this passage, particularly around the suffering servant. Mm-hmm. Um, for one reason is yeah. because um, the passage seems to hold this idea that not speaking about uh, being tormented or being oppressed, that that is an ideal uh, way of suffering, that you keep silent under the yoke, right? And there is something quite beautiful about this, especially as we move into passion. But a pitfall that I might raise up is that um, it's important to also talk about the abuse, right? Or if you know, you're know you experiencing yeah. abuse. Um, and we've got other prophetic models like Jeremiah, who doesn't spare crying out or bitterly <laughs> cursing his condition. So we've got all kinds of prophetic yeah. models. And it's not just this sort of silent under um, under pain, a silent under suffering. That is the model that as Christians, yeah. we embrace, particularly for women and for uh, minoritized people. Yeah. It's important to say that there's a gamut of reactions. Um, and even in this passage, the servant seems like The servant's silent, but the servant is also speaking out and naming the kinds of oppressions that the servant is suffering. So that's why we have the text. (laughs) Exactly right. Right. So the sort of irony there of the silent sufferer is this sufferer is speaking out. It's the reason why we can remember um, this particular servant song. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Rosie. Yeah, that that is super important to underline, Rosie. Thanks for bringing that out. And, you know, I feel like we've kind of gotten to talk about our Palm Sunday text and our Passion Sunday text. Maybe we should wrap it up here and send our preacher friends out (laughs) to do their work. Yeah. Well, preachers, we hope you found something useful out of this wide ranging discussion. And if you did, tell us about it. Reach out on Facebook or email us at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you can find out past episodes, merchandise, and also find that fancy little donate button. Hey, instead of buying a chocolate Easter bunny, why not donate in the name of someone that you love? Every little bit helps to keep this podcast going. 
Make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so that you get new episodes as soon as they drop. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethel. I'm Tim McNinch. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Paul Essa. Have a holy week. Have a holy, holy week. week. Oh. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the gang of four. That's awesome. All do you, right. Do you, do you guys do fa- like Lent fasting? Do you guys like in your traditions? Do you fast over Lent? Okay, that's good. Okay, yeah. In my tradition, we do. I haven't nice. personally this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to do that too. Now I pick up. I try to pick up something that I've been wanting to develop as a habit. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. We do. We do that. I'm actually leading Lent. I led Lent prayers last night and. I'm doing it today too. So yeah, in the in the evening, yeah, mm-hmm. we do. I'm not fasting, but it happens. <laughs> yeah. All right. Huh. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> and then pick it right back up at Easter, right? <laughs> awesome so um email me uh whatever audio file you were able to capture with this uh when you have an opportunity Mm -hmm. and i'll probably edit it you know tomorrow or friday uh, because it goes up on on monday Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah however it works for you Yep, that's likely. However it works out, it's fine. And if it doesn't, I'll just take the Zoom audio and run it through that Adobe widget. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, friends. All right. Have a good week. <laughs> and welcome, Paul. It's so good to have you officially uh, officially with us here. All right. Take care. See you guys. <laughs>